Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. And so in this series, we're looking at Christ as He is, and we've said that that means seeing all that Christ is. And we're looking right now at a passage in Colossians chapter 1 that is a profound passage, a profound description of who Christ is, particularly in relation to the universe. In relation to the universe, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to, well, that isn't working. <laughs> I'll have my emergency team get right on it. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. We're going to be looking at page 983 in the worship Bibles provided both at uh, the uh, Sherwood Forest campus. As you come in to the worship center, you'll have those Bibles available there. In the uh, Clemens campus, it's either underneath your seat or underneath the seat in front of you. Page 983, Colossians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 20. Now, last week I walked you through the opening of this passage and we saw that Jesus is portrayed for us here as the beginning, the beginning of all life and the beginning of all creation. We said that this truth that Jesus is the agent, the one through whom God the Father created all things, is not just mind-boggling when you understand it, it is mind-bending. And to help us understand it, we took a shaker of salt. We said that our son, if you, if you really want to understand or begin to understand how vast the universe is, and uh, how significant it is that the uh, scripture announces Christ to be the maker of the universe. Uh, one of the ways to do that is, is to uh, imagine in your hand one grain of salt, one grain of salt. That one grain of salt represents our sun in our solar system. So if we were to shrink down our sun into the size of a grain of salt, that would mean that our solar system would be about the size of that space in your palm one inch from the center. That would be about where Pluto is making its journey around and around and around. And if you were to shrink down our sun and our solar system to fit into your hand, it would mean that our galaxy would be about the size of North America with 400,000 stars in it. So our star circled by our planet and uh, Pluto right there about an inch outside of there uh, fitting into the palm of your hand would make our galaxy the size of North America. Uh, the uh, amazing news is that our galaxy with its 400,000 uh, stars is not really all that big. That astronomers tell us that there are other galaxies that contain 100 trillion stars and some super galaxies that uh, galaxies that contain a trillion stars, super galaxies that contain 100 trillion stars, and that uh, based upon what we can see with the Hubble telescope, uh, astronomers estimate that we have, uh, that there are 
uh, at least 170 billion galaxies. That's what we can see. Yep, it's bending your mind, right? So uh, running a little bit of math, they say that uh, uh, there are actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I'm missing three zeros. One septillion stars, they estimate, in the universe. One septillion, septillion stars, which is, of course, a lot of universes belonging to 170 billion galaxies. And we uh, looked at that, and, and I don't know about you, but the more I, I try to conceive that, the uh, smaller I feel. In fact, I, I, I said to the first service, I feel about that tall. And one lady came to me after the service, and she said, you, you've been a lot taller than I've been all week. I said, really? She said, yeah, I've been just a flicker on the horizon. I said, okay, I'm too proud. <laughs> You're very humble. <laughs> so now I've got to get myself down to a flicker, which is about where, which is about where we are. You know, a lot of people ask the question, uh, could there be life on other planets? The Bible doesn't uh, affirm it. The Bible doesn't deny it. The Bible doesn't really say. Uh, Billy Graham one time said uh, this. He said, the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not there is intelligent life on other planets, although he said, I find nothing in the Bible that would exclude the possibility. But he said, if there is life on other planets, then God created that life for God created everything. And I, I agree with him. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say we don't know. But uh, what we do know is this. We do know that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, Psalm 19.1 tells us. Uh, and, and this is important for us. There are, those, there are those who attack Christianity today and will continue to attack Christianity today, saying that the more we discover of the universe, the, the more that we, we find with uh, the uh, advanced telescopes and, and, and advanced technology that we have, that the weaker the Christian faith actually becomes, that our faith is not able to explain the vastness of the universe, that our faith is an earthbound faith, and that essentially what they're saying is our faith is, is humanly constructed. And so it's an earthbound, earth-centric faith that has been humanly constructed. And that as a consequence of that, uh, the Christian faith is weak, uh, that, that it is empty, you can't trust it, because we know now too much about the universe. And they say, they posit, that if we were to find life on another planet, it would completely decimate our faith. I categorically deny that. I categorically deny that. And I want to say this, the scientific facts and the mere possibility of life elsewhere can't invalidate biblical faith. And I want to say, especially to younger uh, believers who have heard and will hear that kind of attack in the future, there is absolutely nothing that humanity has discovered or that humanity will discover that can undermine faith in the New Testament, Jesus. Everything and anything we discover, Christ 
has made and Christ owns. That's the testimony of our faith. At the very center of our faith is, 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 a, is a declaration that Jesus is Lord of all. And that means a lot more than many of us who are believers actually realize or recognize. It means that Jesus is Lord himself over all of the cosmos. And so in truth, the vastness and the unknowns of the universe, they don't empty our faith. Discovering the greatness of the universe simply makes our faith stronger. For we know that the Jesus we love and the Jesus that we worship is the one who made everything in it. There is not a star among the one septillion that he has not named. There is not a solar system that doesn't owe its existence to him. There isn't a galaxy among the billions of galaxies found that he doesn't rightly claim as his own. And while we pretend, and we can pretend, to hold the, the star of our solar system in our hands, and we can pretend to watch Pluto's circle in the palm of our hands, he literally holds the entire universe in his hands. And the wonder of our faith, consequently, only grows as our understanding of the universe expands. And what is even better is that the joy of the gospel can only deepen as well. Because here's the reality, the more we recognize that this planet we live on is like a speck of dust in the universe, the greater the gospel has to seem in our eyes that the God of this extraordinary universe would find us, would come to us, would live among us, would walk among us, would, would die for us, simply makes the gospel more marvelous in our eyes. The hands that hold the universe are the same hands put on a tree for you, for me. So yes, I'm just a glimmer on the horizon, living on a little speck of a planet. But this is what I know. The creator of the universe came for me and for you. I don't know why, but he did. I may just be a flicker, but I'm a flicker that God loves. And so are you.
Now, all right, are you, are you small enough? All right, are you small enough? Hey, they fixed it, didn't they? I want to, I'm going to tell you, I have got an amazing team. You see me, you don't ever see them, but they are an amazing team, and I'm grateful for them. All right, are you ready? Now, since we're, we're that small, let's stand up and get a little bigger. Yeah. You say, we don't ever do this. I know. Are we done? No. I want us to read this, this profound passage together. All right? And let's stand in the honor of him who is far greater than we have ever really been able to imagine. Here we go. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Hold on. All right, Sherwood Forrest, are you standing up too? Okay, Sherwood Forrest, all right. Let's start over just in case. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Uh-oh. <laughs> For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Well done. Well done. You may be seated. You may be seated. Now, today, with this passage before us, I want to talk with you about the goal that Jesus has for his creation. Now, goals and objectives, uh, I'm sure most of us would agree, are things that uh, we really can't live without or we can't live well without. Goals and objectives give us purpose. Uh, without them, our lives have no sense of direction. I love what uh, Zig Ziglar once famously said. He said, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. If you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. And there are some people who sadly live their lives aiming at nothing and spending them on nothing and hitting it every, every time. But the truth is, even with clear goals, even when we have clear goals, you and I can never quite be sure that we will accomplish the goals that we set. We, we never are completely in control of our lives. We can have amazing goals, amazing objectives, and, and have them laid out, but we can never guarantee to ourselves that we're going to accomplish those in the end. Why? Because life just happens sometimes. The question I want to ask with you, though, is what about God? What, what about God? What, what about the one whose goals and purposes uh, can't be undermined? If Jesus is the giver of life, 
what is the goal of the life he gives? I can't guarantee my goals, but I can learn a whole lot about life, its purpose, its direction, if I understand his goals. If I know where he's going, then I know where life is going, and I know, I, I then know and can know where I need to be going. Does that make sense? So I want to ask this question with you today, and I want us to look together at this passage. We've already seen together the begin, that Jesus is the beginning of all life and creation. I want you to see with me that he is, the scripture says here, the goal of all life and creation and ultimately the source of all life and creation. So let's begin. Look at the end of verse 16 where the scripture says, all things were created through him and uh, for him. Here at the end of verse 16, Paul adds a new and a very significant insight with a little phrase, for him. All things were created, he says, for him. The Christ who created life, Paul says, is also the goal toward which all of life and creation are moving. And this means two things for us. First of all, it means that in the present, Every created thing and every life has its reason for being, its purpose in Jesus. He is life. He is creation's original purpose. All the things made by him were made ultimately to honor him, were made ultimately to bring him glory. Everything that exists is there to exalt him, to bring him or to reflect on his majesty, his beauty, his worth, his majesty, his excellence, his value. Now, there are those who complain about the God of the Bible and complain about passages like this because they say, aha, see, it proves it. The God of the Bible is egotistical. The God of the Bible is, is concerned about getting affirmation for himself just like us. And so he is, or he really is more human than he is divine. But nothing could be farther from the truth when you understand why it is that Jesus created all things ultimately for himself. Uh, listen, when you and I live as if the universe revolves around us, we, we are rightly charged with being egotistical and, uh, and full of ourselves. I, I think you would agree with that. Uh, if, if we live as if the universe revolves around us and, and everything revolves around us, we call that immaturity, right? We call that immaturity and, uh, and, and, and uh, it's rightly challenged. But when Jesus announces himself to be the center of the universe, he's not being egotistical, he's simply being truthful. He is the center. He is the source of life. He is the source of love. And when he created us and he gave us life, he did so so that we might know and worship him. Uh, do you remember Jesus said at one point, he says, uh, this is eternal life, to know the living God. He, he, he created us so that we might know him and, and he gave us life so that we might worship him. And in knowing and worshiping him, know the fullness and the satisfaction that come only in his love. He made all of life, watch now, for the sake of love. I like the way John Piper explains this. He says, God's love for us is not mainly God making much of us, but his giving us the ability to enjoy making much of him. 
Life is never so rich. Life is never so deep as when we finally understand and see Christ is the center of life. And when we discover the joy of making much of him rather than making much of ourselves. The more we make of ourselves, the emptier we get. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? Have you lived long enough, thought long enough about it to figure that out? The more we make of ourselves, the emptier we are, the angrier we become, the more frustrated we become with life. The reason we get so angry and so frustrated is we weren't designed to make much of ourselves. We were designed to make much of him who made us. So by God's design, our real satisfaction in this life is in Jesus. The real satisfaction for eternity is found in Jesus, in knowing him and in worshiping him as the most precious possession there is. Nothing greater to possess than a personal living relationship with Jesus. And so listen, let me say something to you. When you're jumping in the car for the 10,000 982nd time taking your kids to the 10,982nd soccer game in their professional career. Oh, I know, he's just 10, but it's in that professional career. And you're pulling in there and you're wondering to yourself, is this what life is all about? When you're jumping into the car to head to that office to work with that boss who gives you such fits, when you find yourself stuck in a place in life that you don't think you can overcome, you're, you're dissatisfied, frustrated, and you're asking yourself, is this what life is all about? I just want to tell you the answer is no. But I also want to tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're feeling empty and you're feeling disappointed and you're feeling frustrated with life, like you're not reaching your maximum potential and not accomplishing all the things that you ought to be accomplishing or making all the money you should be making or have all the friends that you should be friending, I just want to say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, all that means is this. It doesn't mean your life is for nothing. It means your life has lost and missed its true center. Because at the end of the day, the point of your life and the point of my life is nothing less than Jesus. 
And as soon as you and I replace him with anything else, we have replaced him with something less than God's very best. And it will not and cannot satisfy. There's no life in it. No joy. How many of you ever bought a new car? You ever bought a new car? Do you know that the frustrating thing about new cars is they don't stay new? If you think that, that life is going to be full and satisfying, if you can just have a new car, what you find is that as soon as you buy that car and, and your rear back wheels, as soon as they leave the lot and hit the road, you've just lost thousands of dollars. You are now driving a used car. There is no way, no way for you to be satisfied by a new car because no car you ever buy ever stays new. Unless, of course, you just leave it with the dealer and, and work out a deal and say, I'm going to buy this car because I always want to have a, a new car. And a new car is what's going to make me feel whole. I'm just going to leave it in your lot. And I'll drive by and point out to my friends and say, see that red car? That's my new car. And so there it is, 2030, and they're going, yeah, that's a 2019. Yep, and it's brand new. <laughs> Life is full of stuff like that. It just doesn't satisfy, doesn't stay, doesn't stick. Only Jesus is infinitely and eternally satisfying. And you see, it's, it's not until we find and know him that we can be satisfied. We're always hungry. We're always empty. We're always searching. I love that famous passage from St. Augustine's Confessions where he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. No Jesus at the center of your life, there will be no rest at the center of your life. Jesus alone is, is rest and peace and wholeness and life itself. That's why the creator came. That's why the creator lived for us, died for us, that we might know him as he is our all in all, that he might live and dwell and be at the very center of our lives. And when Jesus is at the center, everything else comes together. When Jesus is not at the center, Nothing comes together. Secondly, what this means, this little phrase that Jesus is the goal of creation, it means that in terms of the future, all things are literally moving toward him. Everything is literally making its way toward Christ. That's, that's why Jesus says of himself three times in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the beginning of all things. I'm the end of all things. Sometimes we hear certain politicians describing opponents as being on the wrong side of history. When I hear that, I always laugh. I always laugh. Because they, what they're saying is they know what direction history is going. 
I want to tell you, you don't have to be older than 14 to figure out. You don't know where history is going. I don't know what that says about our politicians, but nobody knows where history is going on our own. We can't know where history is going. None of us has got a clue, and none of us gets to decide. But the scripture's witness is that the decision about history's direction is, is one that's already been made. It's been made by him who is the author of history, and he has made himself its end. And one of the most powerful descriptions of the end is, is something we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 uh, and to 28. And I want to read this for you. Jesus is announced by Paul as the end of creation, the one toward whom all of creation is moving. What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, he is the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's see. When all things are subjected to him, then, once that's done, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. When Christ ultimate work is finished. He's going to gather it all up and hand it to the Father so that everything is then under ultimately the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let's unpack this just for a second because it shows us where history is going and where we are going. Here is God's final step in his redemptive plan described for us. Christ turns over our restored world to God, his father, who sent him to recover it. Now, I want you to notice how it happens in two steps. First, Christ conquers permanently every enemy of God, every rule, every authority, every power, everywhere in creation that challenged him and challenged his plan for life and sought to undermine it. Once that is done, Christ turns all things over to his Father. And this transfer of power, if you will, will be worked out over a thousand years, the Bible tells us, during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, when Christ will take back to himself the earth that he created that is rightfully his. And at the end of the thousand-year reign, the book of Revelation tells us that Satan will be unleashed for one final time to lead a final rebellion against God and his kingdom. But he will be defeated along with all those who are with him. And he will be banished to hell to suffer eternally in the lake of fire. And in this way, the enemy of God is abolished forever, never to oppose, never to deceive, never to threaten God's people again. But what is uh, so fascinating to me is that Paul says he's not the last enemy. He is an enemy who is destroyed and defeated, but the last enemy both of God and man is death, and that enemy too will be abolished. And when this final work 
of Christ is completed. He will deliver the kingdom he has restored to the Father. And it is in this way that the great gospel story will finally come to a close. The great creator of the universe, who took the assignment of redeemer from his father, who came to earth as a baby, living and growing as a man among men who taught and preached and healed and did miraculous things, who died, who was buried, who was raised, who ascended to his father, who now intercedes for those who belong to him. One day when he returns, he will fight, he will conquer, he will rule, he will judge, and then finally judge all the enemies of God, and he will recreate the earth and the heavens and finally deliver it all to the father, restored to their original design and purpose. And the end will be just as it was in the beginning, sin will be no more, and God will reign supremely. So all things come from Jesus, all things are for Jesus, and one day all things will return to him, be put in their proper place, be put under subjection to the God whose love overcomes sin. Now this is not to say that in the end, everyone will be saved. Jesus made this clear. That isn't what is going to happen. Sin is serious. God is holy. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The restoration of all things to the rule of God means that sinners who refuse God and refuse to receive God as he is in Christ will get exactly what they want, a life without him. In the language of the Bible, they are cast or thrown into hell, into the lake of fire, an existence separated from the God who is the only center that satisfies with life and love. And those who find themselves there will only have themselves to blame. As C.S. Lewis writes and says, those who yield, I like this, who say to God as they live their lives what Jesus did at Gethsemane, thy will be done. Those will find themselves always in a heaven centered on the God who is love. But for those who say to God as they live their lives, my will be done, those who fight tooth and nail to hold on to their petty lives and their petty idols, they find themselves in hell centered on the self that can never satisfy. With no one by themselves to blame. So as we look at this passage, I want you to see with me that this passage gives us a proper understanding of the point and the purpose of creation and life and the point and the purpose of our own lives as well. We ask the question, if Jesus is the giver of life, what is the goal of the life he gives? The answer coming from our passage for this morning is this. The goal of life is life with Jesus. The goal of life is life with Jesus. Life as it was meant to be and life as it will be one day. The goal of life is life with Jesus. If you put anything in the place of Christ, you will not know life. 
if there were one thing that I could leave with you that I wanted to just impress upon you is simply this. Because Jesus is Lord, Jesus is life, and there is nothing and no one who will ever satisfy you, who can satisfy you, except Jesus. The point of that 10,987th trip to the soccer game had better be Jesus. In everything, everywhere, at all times, he was meant to be and has been designed to be the center of our lives. So what does that, what does that mean for you? First, it means this, your life, like all of creation, is meant to bring Christ honor and glory. The reason Christ came for you is that you were meant to exist for him. He's bringing you back. He came to bring you back to himself. Second, it means that wherever creation has gone wrong, you can be absolutely sure Christ is going to restore it and make it right. Third, it means that everything was created and designed with Christ in mind. And his heart is a heart to rejoice over you for all eternity. And he made you to rejoice over him for all eternity starting now. Finally, because Christ is the creator and end of life, it means that life will never make sense without him. It cannot make sense without him. Unless Christ is given his proper status as the owner, the designer, and the end of all things in the here and now, everything follows, falls apart. Listen, after, after 35 plus years of pastoring, I, I, I want to say this to you. I want you to hear me. Listen carefully. Without Jesus at the center, everything falls apart. Marriages fall apart. Families fall apart. Friendships fall apart. Churches fall apart. Nations fall apart. Everything disintegrates. Everything degenerates without Christ at the center, without Christ in his proper place at the center, everything falls apart. And any substitute for him is always a recipe for emptiness disappointment, anger, frustration, bitterness, pointlessness. So here is my question. Is Jesus Christ at the center of your 
life. You say, I think so. How would I know? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you find joy there? Do you find a peace that passes understanding? Do you find a confidence that nothing can shake? Because if Jesus is the Jesus of the New Testament, the one who is the cosmic Lord, if he really is the center of your life, those things will be present in your life. Maybe not perfectly present, growing, but they'll be there. If they're not there, may I just say to you, you're playing a game. You're saying Jesus is Lord, but at the end of the day, it's not really true. Something else has taken his place at the center. So the next time you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're angry and you're frustrated and you're mad and you're a professing follower of Jesus, I want you to remember it really isn't your husband's fault or your wife's fault. It really isn't the fault of your employer. What that really means at the end of the day, pulling everything back, is that Jesus has slipped from the center of your life and something far less has taken his place. I want to invite you, if you would, to stand all across the room. Father God, as we stand, I pray that you would be at work at Sherwood Forest. I pray that you would be at work in Clemens. I pray, Father, that you would be speaking to your people. I pray, Father, that you would find us faithful here today on both of our campuses searching deep looking carefully, looking respectfully, looking humbly in the presence of him who created both heavens and earth. Find us pursuing the the question, is Jesus really Lord? Father, for some, 
on both campuses. The reality is that while there is some head knowledge of Jesus, there is not a personal, vibrant relationship with him because in truth, Jesus is known as Savior but has never been submitted to as Lord of all of life. And on both campuses, there are lives that have never been fully, truly yielded to the one who created them. And seeing, Father, today the reality of the Creator come, dying on a cross for broken humanity, seeing that and seeing that His death is for sinners and owning that sin My prayer today is, Father, that there would be those who would give themselves completely to your Son as Lord of all. I pray too, Father, for believers who are gathered on both campuses who, as they look deeply into their lives, see an absence of peace and joy and confidence, but see instead bitterness and anger and frustration, disenchantment with life, even disappointment with you. And I'm praying that today they would look and see what is at the center of their lives and that today they would give it up, lay it down and ask you afresh to take your rightful place at the center of their lives. And I pray and ask it, Lord, in the name of the cosmic Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.